Welcome to the New Zealand International Film Festival podcast series. Today's Q&A follows a screening of Judy and Punch and is presented in association with Script to Screen. Director Mira Folks is in conversation with Chelsea Preston Crayford. Kia ora koutou. my name's Jackie Dennis, I'm from Script to Screen. Script to Screen is doing this talk in partnership with the New Zealand International Film Festival and this talk is possible thanks to the Australian High Commission, the New Zealand International Film Festival, New Zealand Film Commission and White Studios. So anyway, thank you so much for being here and I'm going to hand over to Chelsea Preston Crayford and Mira Fawkes. I mean, what an amazing film, right? I, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a bold, self-assured first feature film. What the hell? Why is that your first feature film? It was a mistake. It shouldn't have been. <laughs> it just happened that way. I think, um, I mean, we've been talking, so I'm going to ask you things that, that I um, have already asked you maybe, but I think it's really interesting like how this film came about I know that Vice brought the film to you, um, or at least brought the, the nugget of the idea to you, um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. But also, before that happened, had you... I know you'd made um, some short... Three short films? Yeah, three shorts. And had you been looking for something to write and direct? Where were you at in terms of your own journey with that? Yeah, I mean, sort of, but not not actively. I mean, I, di I still wasn't really even sure that I wanted to direct at that stage, making the shorts. I'd, I'd been an actor for um, some time before that and, um, and basically just started making shorts in between acting jobs because I wasn't getting as much work as I wanted and I wanted to be busy. And I, I guess as well, maybe subconsciously, there was a part of me that was like exploring an idea of how... I could create longevity for myself in the industry. I could feel the work um, getting more sparse and I, I wasn't getting as much um, work that I really liked and I was also finding it, we are talking a little bit about this, um, finding it more and more difficult to do the jobs that I didn't really like as an actor. I was finding it kind of excruciating to do them and I felt like I wanted to find something else. And so I started making shorts um, a bit more, it was just a bit of an exploration. I mean, I didn't have, I wasn't sitting on this kind of feature idea that I desperately wanted to make and had been dreaming up for years or anything like that. Um, and then Vice uh, in America had seen a couple of my... Well, they, they saw my first short film and they asked if they could buy it for their on online um, shorts platform. So they they did that and then they um, invested some money in my second short um, and that sort of kicked off a creative relationship with them. And then I guess they were just um, starting to form Vice Studios at that time because Vice is sort of a giant... I don't even know what Vice is. It's so many things. It's like a, um, um, a mega corporation um, and, you know, has a particular kind of um, brand within the in industry of being, you know, well known for that um, certain kind of um, journalistic stuff that they do, but they also wanted to develop a studio where they were making um, feature films as well. Um, and at that time, there were a bunch of um, guys that were working within Vice that just... Um, I guess they were just searching for new emerging directorial voices, writers that they felt were interesting, and um, and they were uh, they were wanted to develop work with with kind of emerging uh, writer and writer directors, um, and 
so they approached me. They had someone within the New York office at Vice um, had come up with an idea to make a film about Punch and Judy, basically, a live-action film about Punch and Judy. And that was kind of all. And they liked this idea, but they didn't know what it was or what it should be. Mm. Um, and they just approached me to to ask if I was interested in being essentially like a gun-for-hire gun writer to develop the the script. Um, and at that stage, I didn't... I didn't know whether they wanted me to direct it. I didn't think that they did. Um, and maybe they, they weren't sure either. They were maybe just sussing it out to see how the writing went. Um, but over the course of... It um, uh, took me a couple of years to, to get the script to a stage that we all felt happy with and then they they um, indicated that they wanted me to direct it, um, which was interesting because I think I would have written a very different film <laughs> if I had have known that I was going to direct it, especially as a first feature. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, kind of a gift to not know... That you were going to be the one that you had to way, pull it all off. It's amazing what you well, what I do. I can't speak for everyone, but for myself as a writer, in terms of just, um, I think I've got an innately really practical brain and a really realistic brain, and I just never would have written anything as big or as ambitious or as tonally mm. obscure or as weird if I had have been setting out specifically to write myself a first feature. I would have I would have harnessed it in such a way. But they Vice were great. They were really encouraging. They just kept saying to me, look, just go nuts, do whatever, write whatever. Because at the time they had a deal with Fox um, Studios um, in the States for um, first look deal or something, whatever that even means, for like $2 million movies. Uh, and so I think that the plan was that it might be part of one of those for like a, a very low budget kind of... Um, uh, and when I started writing, I sort of said to them pretty quickly in the process, I said, I, 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 this doesn't feel like it's going to be that. What's coming out feels bigger and more ambitious. And they were like, don't worry, just keep going. Just make it as big as you want it to be. We'll figure it out mm. once we land on a script that we're all happy with. So, yeah, it was really them, their encouragement and them pushing me to um, to be really loose with it that, that, um, that made it end up that way, I think. And when, when in the process was it, I've heard you talk a little bit about grappling with, with when you realised it needed to be a period piece. Mm. And what was it that informed your choice around that? Mm. And how did you feel about that? I didn't think much about it, actually, which is interesting. I just sort of, like, um, when I decided it needed to be period, I just started writing period. And it wasn't until later that I sat back and I was like, do I want to make a period film? Like, you know, I just right. didn't think much about any of it. I just right. kind of instinctually did it. But the reason that that came about was because I was sort of... Um, uh, you know, I was researching the history of um, Punch and Judy, and it comes it, it, it comes from Commedia dell'arte in Italy, and it came over to to, to the UK around um, mid seventeenth century, and it began as marionette, beautiful marionette puppets, and then there's sort of not much um, info about how this devolution happened. I like to call it a devolution because I think marionettes are really quite beautiful, but the hand puppets, I'm I'm not a huge fan of. But somehow it kind of devolved into this, mm. um, you know, very particular. And a lot of people love it, um, and it's you know obviously it's it, it's endured for a very long time. This by the seaside kind of hand puppet thing, but I didn't know what to what the movie was in in that world, and mm -hmm. and and then. I started kind of... I was fascinated by the marionettes and I thought that they were, um, you know, artistically beautiful and visually striking and I liked this idea of, um, of of taking... turning it into what was essentially like a fictionalised origin story and how, how did it come to pass that this very violent, misogynistic, weird 
puppet play um, became really famous amongst children and, and maintained that kind of popularity for such a long time. So, so I took it right back and, and um, made up a stupid origin tale, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> an awesome feminist fable of an origin tale. And, and um, do you know, because I remember being on the Sydney waterfront not that long ago and seeing a Punch and Judy... There. Do you know if it's still sort of perform like? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think it's still very popular in the UK and in Bright crazy. Brighton and stuff. I think it's probably been, and especially maybe in the last sort of ten or twenty years, it's yeah. been modified a little bit. I mean, yeah. the, the the footage in the end credits of the movie is actually footage from Bondi Junction in the nineteen thirties, <gasps> weirdly, which is where I live. Um, but it was the best footage that I could find, and um, so that footage is really fascinating to me because it's still really violent, obviously, and these kids mm. are just like they don't know whether to laugh or cry, and it's you know for me it just epitomised what I was trying to sort of say about the nature of violence as entertainment in the movie. Um, but um, I think it's probably been toned down a lot and mm. maybe some of the, the the more intense domestic violence elements have been scaled back a little bit, I would mm. like to think, but maybe not. I, I would say they probably <laughs> have been. You'd but I think it's still so. quite popular, yeah. Wow. Mm. Um, and in terms of like... Let me just... Oh, oh, oh. So I heard uh, you talk in the Sydney Q&A about a thing that happened with the dog. Getting the dog. I'm wondering if you can tell the dog story. Oh, the, like at first day on set story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been, Chelsea and I have been sitting talking a lot about, yeah. um, you know, um, all of the kind of crazy fears and insecurities and all of that stuff that you grapple with when you start to learn a new school set. And, and directing is a funny one. It's so interesting. There is so much to learn and it's so kind. And I never went to film school and you never mm -hmm. went to film school. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I've always kind of, I I, I, I come at it as an actor, so I've spent a lot of time on sets, but I don't always feel especially qualified to do my job. So there's a lot of fear that comes with it. Yes. And I felt that really uh, acutely on the shorts and I felt it even more acutely on, on, on this. But mm. anyway, so my first day of set, and the, the nice thing about a feature is you have the time to really prepare. You're very, very prepared. You have a great, long, healthy, hopefully pre-production where you, you know, so every, and everything has to be so planned to a T. But then stuff happens that you just can't anticipate. And, and for me, the, our, our first shoot day was pretty much a complete disaster and I, I think in fact we had to reshoot almost everything that we shot on that day I remember so vividly arriving to set that morning it was like sort of five o'clock in the morning it was still dark and I made my way down to set and I sat and it, we were in the kitchen um, of Punch and Judy's Manor and I hadn't even seen the set dressed yet so I'm sitting there in the dark and as the light starts to come up I'm looking around going oh my god this is my set and this is the first day and oh I'm so nervous and anyway but we had a scene that day with the baby and the dog so it was a scene that involved Damon's character Punch's character mm. um it's when the dog steals the food and the baby and we did a we did like a really little just early block through with these we had two babies they were twins and they were beautiful babies they were so delightful they were so happy and they were so sweet and they loved everyone and everything was exciting but Damon did something in a very in like the first rehearsal of a run-through I think he shouted just a little too loudly in a rehearsal when he's holding the baby and this baby just looked at him and it was like she made a decision right then and there that she hated him 
and she started screaming and it was like she telepathically communicated this to her twin sister and for the rest of the shoot, the entire 30 days of the shoot, those babies wouldn't look at him. They were just like, we hate you, we don't want to know about you and everyone else they'd be fine with. Mia would be laughing and playing with them and then she'd hand the baby to Damon and they'd just start screaming. So the baby screamed the whole day without fail as a horrible thing I mean I'm not a, a parent uh, I'm for some reason the, the mum the baby's mum seems to be the most relaxed person about this on set everyone else was like oh god this she'd is she'd be used to it she was probably used for, yeah. <laughs> but so the baby screamed all day and the dog which had been doing all these train this training and we'd been getting the dog the animal wrangler to send videos back to to show us what the dog could do and yep look it's fine it r- runs up and it gets the sausages and it's it does this and it does that and we're like this dog is good it's doing all the things we needed to do. But the dog freaked out. The dog got to set and just, it's like it looked around and saw all these people and saw the camera and just went, no, no, I don't, no, I don't want to do, I'm not interested at all. It wouldn't even sit. I mean, this is a trained dog that had been, (laughs) it had been in in intense training for months and you couldn't get it to sit. And the one thing it had to do that day was to like walk up to a fork with a piece of sausage on it and eat the sausage and it was like <laughs> the sausage was like the devil it would see it and it would just run it was scared of meat <laughs> suddenly the dog was scared of meat and the baby was terrified of Damon and it was just like a disaster I remember looking around and just thinking is this normal is this what all first days feel like but then seeing the crew's faces and just thinking no I'm pretty sure this is bad this is oh. really bad and then sure enough when I got home that day and every all my crew started texting me saying I'm so sorry that was a really bad first day and I was like <gasps> okay at least I'm not at least that's abnormal yes you know? and then every day was sort of easier after that but it was pretty it sucked it was awful and and when the dog ended up actually taking the food off the plate it doesn't take the sausage does it no we it had to kind of re rework that <laughs> it takes the egg well we discovered that the dog was really into eggs it was <laughs> like okay we can work with this just, you gotta think on your feet you gotta get, yeah. you get but it's really funny because like my editor um danny cooper is so, so fantastic and she'd done a lot of heavy lifting before i even got there when she was assembling the movie but she would have spent there's there is days and probably weeks of her life that has been taken up with that dog and that baby just wow. getting something usable and it's amazing how little you need like you can just you sometimes you just need that tiny few seconds but then and then everyone so often people say to me after seeing the film oh isn't the baby delightful and the dog <laughs> the dog was so well trained I'm like don't even talk to me oh my so, god yeah and in terms of doing those reshoots was so your editor was editing as you went she was assembling as we went and we'd okay. talk every day at the end on wrap on the drive home. We'd, we'd, we'd talk in the car about what we had and what we needed and what we maybe didn't get. Unfortunately, we were so tight that mm. it was very um, rare for us to be able to pick something up. So um, unless it was really kind of desperate, like we can't cut the scene together without mm. that. But that was it's comforting to have that conversation at the end of the day and just sort of, you know know that you've got something that yeah. might cut together but yeah. on, on, we didn't on day one but the rest and of the days we did because I'm just thinking because it's so specific and a really you know the production values are intense um and did you have an awareness when you were filming it we're not coming back here to reshoot anything if we if we can think of anything we need while the set's all still up or while it's still dressed or while we still have the actors, we can get it. But I mean, what was what was your 
when you got into the edit, what did you feel in terms of going back and reshooting stuff? Did you have to go back and reshoot anything? We did a we did a small pickup with the um, puppets. Puppets were oh, weirdly harder than yeah. the baby and the dog. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But, uh, we did a little bit of a pickup with the puppets, but other than that, we didn't really have any wiggle room. Um, it was very limited. We got there's a it's amazing what you can do in a pickup too. If you just need a tiny little piece of something, there are a couple yeah. of tiny little pieces that we went back and got. Um, but um, I knew that the pickups were limited. Mm. Um, you know, once we once we were out of a set, we were never going back. And mm. I mean, what I didn't know, I, I was just under the impression. I think it was probably from being on so many lo low budget films as an actor or seeing people I knew make movies. I just assumed that we had no overtime, that it just didn't exist. Like there's no such thing. <laughs> don't even think about it. Don't even. And because I'm a very just naturally punctual person, mm. I would like I'd be scheduling my days really specifically and you, you've got a whole crew that do that for you as well but I was very like you know um but it wasn't until about three quarters of the way through the shoot that that I remember my first saying to me you know you've been very good with overtime if you really feel like you need it then you should and I'm like what do you mean I can do it and he's like yeah you can do it and I was like Jesus Christ I wish I had have known that three weeks ago I just assumed that we did it but you know we had a bit of wiggle room but, but yeah you know that that's one of like that just, you know, being a first-timer, sometimes you just are naive to certain You've things. You've got to learn to And I think everyone else around. was just really stoked. They were like – because they're, you know, so used to directors pushing that. But I just assumed that we didn't have any. But Oh, wow. Probably could have gone a bit harder <laughs> on the dog and the baby on that day one. <laughs> um, I'm really curious about the music in the film because it's, it's so much a part of the tone. Um was music a part of your writing process or was that something that really came in in post-production? How did you arrive at the music? It, it, weirdly, it was a part of my writing process in terms of I had a whole playlist of, of music that I thought I would use and songs even that I thought I would option and use a license, but um, none of them ended up in the film that I made, wow. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know, often it was a version of that, like, for example, the montage where the Len Leonard Cohen song plays. There was a song that I would always listen to when I was writing and I was very sort of specifically writing this this piece for this song and it just didn't work when, when I dropped it into the edit. It just wasn't right. It just didn't... So there was always going to be a song there but it wasn't the, the same song. Mm. And in terms of score, um, I didn't... I You know, again, I had sort of, like, just brush strokes of, of, of stuff, instrumental things that I thought would be in the in the tonal world. But when we were cutting the movie, uh, we had a really hard time finding temp that felt right, mm. actually. Um, and I think it was to do with just the marriage of the, the weird tonal worlds with the, with the film, trying yeah. to kind of marry that darkness and light. And there were certain scores that felt like they were in the ballpark, like there were, um, you know, we used bits and pieces from Isle of Dogs, for example, which is that very, what's his Displat, Alexander Displat? Oh, I'm embarrassed, I, don't I can't know. remember. Yeah. Anyway, but that, you know, there were certain scores that felt like, oh, it's something, but they were only in the ballpark because they felt very bold and unique mm. in their own right. Mm. And so it started, I started to realise that actually we needed to kind of, you know, just find what it, it was going to come late and it was going to come from our composer and it was going to hopefully come together as something that was boldly ours and 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 yeah. of the movie and it came really late actually um um just because everything you know is so often rushed and so we were dropping in 
um, cues from Frank right in uh, right throughout the, the the final mix. In fact, on the final day of the final mix, we we're dropping in big new cues, which was terrifying. But wow. it was really working. It was really great. I love I love the music that he made for the movie. Oh, and it's so good. He had a lot of stuff to do. Like there's a lot of music in there. There's, there's a bunch of cues, and they're very diverse as well. So he just had a lot of heavy lifting to do in a short period of time, which is so often yeah. the case. But um, but I think as soon as we started to land on the the themes and then build around them then I mm. felt really confident that it was going to work but it was sort of a it was a process it yeah. was but most fun out of the whole process for me actually yeah, yeah. yeah. the sound it was uh, interesting that when um the 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 sounds the the sort of premix in the mix at the grade and and finalizing the music when all of that was sort of hap happening simultaneously it was the first time in the entire process that I sort of stopped and went oh this is fun because up until then it had wow. just been really <laughs> traumatic <laughs> What following on from that? What um, what did you find the hardest, and what did you find the most fun in terms of the writing process, the shooting process, and the editing process? I mean, the hardest is easy. The the most fun is a hard one to answer. I mean, the writing. Um, I'd never written a feature before, so I was basically just flying blind. I was making it up, and I was to feel like I, I felt like I was teaching myself how to write in the process. So it was a very long process. It wasn't very economical. I probably could have done it a lot differently, and will probably do it a lot differently in the future. But there was something. I mean, as hard as it was, and it was, it felt so hard. And I was like, I can't do this. I don't have this in me. I'm not a writer. And but there were those moments, and we were touching on this mm. earlier, like. Something about those, and I don't even want to say days because it's rarely a whole day. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's 10 minutes when you actually achieve something when you're writing that you feel happy about or proud of. It's like, for me, that is the best feeling. It's almost, it gazumps anything. It gazumps a good feeling on set or in the edit. It's like, there's something about that that's mm. so satisfying, but it's rare. But, yeah, I mean, ge generally the, the, the writing process I found really difficult. And then the shoot, I mean, the same sort of thing. It was just um, – it was tough. It was really fast. There was so much happening and I knew so little and I felt like I was learning so much. So, um, basically, everything felt hard. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are moments where you sort of surprise yourself and you kind of go, oh, no, I'm, I'm – I'm, I've 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 got this more than I think I do, you know. And right. for me, you know, my um, probably my most comfortable place is is talking to actors, and I love that process, and I really enjoy that process. And watching um, an actor do something that you never expected that just makes what's on the page so much better, and mm. like that's always just so delightful. Um, but somehow, if there was something that that I achieved technically um, that I liked, that was almost more satisfying because I was so insecure about myself as a technical director um you know right. I felt like I was playing catch up so often um that um that when I had a really clear you know like maybe to be a shot and I was like I have a feeling I want to try this kind of um shot and 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 it works and it looks good and you kind of think I, mm. I, I was always quite satisfied when I felt more confident about about um um directing the actors and working in that side of things so when I achieved something that I actually was was happy with in, in, in the technical world and, and mm. with the camera, it felt really satisfying, yeah. Do you feel like you are um, more confident in that area now, having made this incredibly bold, great feature? I think in so much as I realise now that I don't have to know everything and actually what I do have to do is I need to be able to talk about emotion, I need to be able to talk about story mm -hmm. and that is 
just as important in the technical world as it is with your actors. Like all I need to be able to do really is communicate um, story and emotion to to my technical people that are there Mm. who are – that's what they do you know Mm. if I can communicate that properly to a to a DP and to the rest of their department then then that's okay I mean it's great it's I mean you know those those filmmakers that are amazingly technical as well like people like Paul Thomas Anderson who not only is like a complete lens nerd and can talk about cameras for days on end but he shot his last film and it looks beautiful like he was the DP it's that's kind of incredible but you don't have to be it'd be Mm. great if we could all be excellent at everything Mm. but you kind of don't have to be and I think um I think for me the most important thing is being able to articulate um, story and emotion and tone and then and then trusting that all those great people that you've assembled whose job it is to to interpret that mm. in a practical way will do that job. So so I think I feel more confident in that in that respect. I don't feel like I have to know everything quite right. the same way that I thought I did. In terms of the st- communicating story and emotion and tone. I'm really curious because I know that when... It might have been a little bit different for you because Vice approached you with this idea and and seemingly gave you a lot of freedom Mm -hmm. to discover what it was. But I know that when you're in the process of getting something up, getting something made, bringing other people into it, you have to describe what it is a lot. Mm. Sometimes before you even know. And how this film is so tonally original... I can't think of anything that it's like. And so how did you do that? Well, good question. <laughs> I just said to people a lot, it's going to feel like nothing you've ever seen before. And that's a difficult prospect. When you haven't made a movie and you're saying mm. to people, trust me to come on board on this thing that I can't quite describe, but yeah. just trust that. And I didn't even know, you know, I still don't even know if it works or, you know. So the, the, that, you, there's that constant doubt, but I did know that I didn't want it to feel like other movies. And so, the you know, the really easy go-to and what is often expected of you in those rooms when you're pitching or whatever is to, to, to have comparisons. And I would often sort of reluctantly pull really weird comparisons. What were they? Oh, like, uh, when I was really pushed on that sort of stuff, they changed all the time, but it was like, um, it was like um, a princess bride meets the Pusher trilogy, you know, those Nicholas Wining (laughs) Refn kind of ultra-violent kind of weird, you know. Okay. Or, or I I don't know, I just tried to make it sound as weird as possible because I didn't want it to feel... I just, yeah, but that was hard because it's very difficult. And to, to Vice's credit, they... And maybe on some level on the page, it actually is clearer than what I like to think it is. Or some, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But um, it, it was tricky because um, it certainly doesn't fit neatly into a genre box. And I think mm. that's um, understandably scary for anyone that's financing a movie because yeah. it makes it incredibly hard to get people to see it. So, you know, but I think maybe my naivety was helpful in that I probably wouldn't um, I'd probably be scared to do that again. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. The performances in the film are so great and I'm curious about the casting process and I'm also curious, like, how did you get the extras to even be good? Oh. Like, everyone in it is good, including people that you see once. yeah. How did you do that? I love all of those extras (laughs) so much. I mean, I was really particular with extras. Were you? Well, I really wanted certain um, 
um, faces um, and I also wanted to be able to – there's so much crowd stuff. I didn't want to have yeah. to cut around. You always have to cut around a little bit because, yeah. you know, it's a tough – being an extra is a tough job, I reckon. Yeah, you and the extras like, in this are, like, really heightened Yeah, as well. they're really heightened. It's they've got to be at the right time. level of performance but not too big. Yeah. You know when you get an acting job and you've got just, like – very little to do and it's always harder than when you've got a big chunk of it's like the less you have to do the harder so I really feel for extras yeah um um and yeah it's not it's not fun when you're having to kind of cut around a scene because of someone in the deep background who's just acting too hard and you're like oh god (laughs) (laughs) it's awful but I was really particular and I tried to meet with them all and then and, and that they, oh, were, wow. they were on set a lot and so I was able to kind of, um, you know, develop a bit of a relationship with them and I knew the ones that I thought were, you know... That you put in the front. Yeah, 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 yeah right. The ones that I yeah. liked. There's a couple that I liked so much that I'm actually... There's, there, there was two extras that I loved so much that I'm, I'm, I'm writing something for them. I Really? really? Who were they? If you um, can talk one about of it. Them, one of them was in the Heretics camp and he was... He's not in there a great deal. He was a little camera shy actually, which is maybe... <laughs> Um, but his name was David and he was um, a deaf actor who came a ways away, travelled up to, to, to Melbourne to be on set and um, he was so wonderful. He was sort of surrounded by all those mad women in the heretics camp, most of whom are like my good friends from drama school and then David and he right. was just – I just really liked him a lot and he was wonderful and wonderfully kind of um, – um, collaborative and I thought he was great and then there's another woman called Tina who is um, part of the crowd in Judy's final speech and there's, there's, there's a couple of close-ups right at the end there when Judy's doing mm. her final speech and cut to Tina she's actually one of um, Tina's um, I think um, I think she's whore two or something in the in the um, credits <laughs> but she's so much more than whore two she's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> she's really great uh, just re- like real I, I thought really interesting very real actors who don't always get a chance to be on screen and I think it's really kind of fascinating like I, I had a really good extras casting person that yeah. went out of her way to try and find interesting faces and 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 very kind of real performers mm. and yeah yeah and when you were writing the film, did you have actors in mind or did you come to them with the casting process or a combination? Uh, again, I had a lot of actors in mind, but none of them ended up in the in the wow. movie, which is interesting the way it goes. You know, and sometimes I'd like, I'd think about a certain actor that wasn't age appropriate or that there was some reason, but just because of an energy, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I yeah, often yeah. thought about Ben Mendelsohn when I was writing for Punch because I had no idea who Punch would be and I knew it wouldn't wouldn't be Ben, mm. um, but I liked the idea of that kind of an energy, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and also Jackie Weaver, who I'd worked with, with before, mm. um, she was un- she was unwell when we were shooting, so she was un- unable to do it, which was a bummer, but she she was in my head when I was writing for the, for the maid character. Mm. Um, but other than that, not really. And then everyone sort of, um, came about differently. Mia came on quite early. Um, I knew her a little bit socially, and I um, and I gave her the script, and she really loved it. And I loved the idea of her doing it, and she championed it from really early on, and was fantastic. And then, it, pretty much everyone else, I auditioned, and I really wanted to try. Once Mia was on board, and once I knew I really wanted Damon, and we talked a little bit about whether it was tricky getting Damon across the line with Vice, and it was. They were really good about it. I think they they there was sort perhaps hoping that I'd have a higher profile actor um mm. but um at the end of the day they very much just trusted me to and he was hands down the best there was no question um he he was the best person for the role but um um but everyone um else auditioned and I, I and once I had Mira and Damon in my mind I really wanted to to, to make the movie 
just using Australian actors if I could um, mm. um, for both practical financial reasons yes. and also just because there's so many great actors that are often under, underutilised. A lot of people in there that I went to drama school with, a lot of theatre actors that don't do, do much screen work and I liked the idea of, of using, using them. And yeah, There's a lot of underutilised act actors in the name of sort of needing to finance things and needing yeah. profiles. and Yeah, yeah. I mean, Damon's so good. You can't he's so good. And yeah. he's so, I mean, he's very well known in Australia. And, but he works so much internationally as well. But he's just, you know, it's funny that whole thing about yeah. what constitutes a commercially meaningful actor and what doesn't. And yes. as we were just talking about earlier, yeah. like these days it seems to basically just be Marvel. Like if you're in a Marvel movie, <laughs> then you're meaningful. If you weren't, then you're not. Like, and how uh. that shifts and changes from day to day. Like one, one minute, you know... Charlize Theron's the most commercially meaningful woman. The next minute, she's off the radar, and it's someone. It just can flip. So I don't think it's anyone so really knows what terrifying. it means or why. Or yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. But God, you just want to. I, I I would hate to be in a position where you were um, having to cast for those reasons, and knowing mm. that there was someone better out there that could do a better job of it, and you weren't able to cast them. But it happens yeah. all the time. Yeah, most it does. of the time, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um. You filmed this in Australia. Did you know this was going to be an Australian film when you were writing it, considering you went through Vice mm. US? Mm, not at all, no. When I started um, writing it, I, I assumed that – I, I hoped that we'd shoot in Eastern Europe somewhere. Um, and that's partly because I wanted it to feel, you know, European but not specifically British. I wanted it to um, – uh, you know, lots of reasons, and also it's like uh, it, there's a, there's a lot of countries in Eastern Europe where there's great crews. It's cheaper to shoot and all of that sort mm. of stuff. Um, I didn't for a second imagine that we'd shoot in Australia, um, and then that really actually was a financial decision, which I look back on now and I'm really grateful for because there was so much that I was doing for the first time. There's so much that was new and terrifying. And being just at least at home, or I'm not from Melbourne, but being around people I'd worked with before, it took away... It, just the, the, it made it easier on other levels that I didn't really anticipate. So I'm really mm. happy that it worked out that way. But, it, but basically it was financial mm. because we could get... Um, support from Screen Australia and the state funding bodies and Vice's dollar stretched more and, yes. you know, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Was it hard to find the locations in Australia? Because yeah. it doesn't feel like Australia. Yeah. Well, it's just this what, that one place, Monsalvat, which is this artist col colony or commune just outside of Melbourne, um, which serves as the whole town and then Judy and Punch's Manor is somewhere else. So it's a cheat. But... Um, mm. Without that, we couldn't have done it because we couldn't afford to build anything. And, yeah. I mean, we break period rules all over the place. It's mm. kind of obvious. But um, the, the, the arch there was something about the madness of the arch that architecture which was all um, inspired by um, European architecture from medieval times right through. There's all sorts of, like, it's a big mishmash of different architectural styles mm. and it felt like it sort of suited the world that I'd imagined. So without that location... I don't think we could have made it in Australia. And do you think of it as a specific place, country, anything, or do you think of it as a world that you've sort of built? I like to think it as a built world, you know, no place, no particular time. I like the idea that it just sort of sits outside of that. But yeah, yeah. yeah, that was that was the hope. So and it also it comes in handy when you when you break rules because doing like super strict period is really expensive and really hard. Yeah. But the world building stuff came before any of those financial restraints. So it was right. very much a choice to kind of create a, a, a mishmash of a world. Yeah. Right. 
I'm just going to check the time because I am aware that we don't want to natter on forever. I also want to know, like, what is the role of other people in your creative process? Do you, because I know that you're a part of Blue Tongue Films, um, and that it's interesting, I think, for you to talk a little bit about that collective and how that's informed you as a maker. And also, like, I'm curious whether or not you are someone that seeks out feedback all the time or whether you're somebody that sort of protects something until you feel it's ready to share. Mm. What's your process? Um, well, I mean, I'm lucky in so much as I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are filmmakers. So my boyfriend's a filmmaker, mm. a bunch of my very close friends are all filmmakers and um, they also do a lot of different other things. So Blue Tongue is um, a bunch of friends that I basically got to know when I moved to Sydney 15 years ago or so um, and I started out acting in all of their short films when they were making shorts and they had this collective together and I wasn't directing at the time so I wasn't a part of the, officially a part of the collective but I was working with a lot of them as an actor and then when I started making my own stuff I got kind of um, bought into the fold officially as part of the group and um, essentially it's just like it's very loose and it's very kind of um, unstructured but it's just a bunch of friends who, who are all directing and we all come from really different backgrounds. Um, mine is acting, um, uh, Nash Edgerton is a stuntman before he became a director, uh, Joel his brother is also an actor, Luke Doolan was an editor and still edits and Spencer Susser who is um, American but but part of our gang is an amazing editor, does a lot of music videos, does all sorts of diff just different sort of skill sets. I think born out of a group of people who are quite resourceful. And, mm. and so just naturally we started feeding in on each other's work and giving each other feedback and working together. Um, and it's, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it's kind of very loose and unstructured, but we tend to just continue to work on each other's stuff. And I... I think naturally I just seek out that sort of um, collaboration mm. because I find it useful. Um, and and there's other people that I have in my life that are not blue tongue people that I will naturally sort of seek out advice from um, as well. I think especially uh, um, at a writing stage, um, you, um, just to I, I think getting getting that sort of feedback can be really useful and terrifying, but important. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, t I I tend to keep it keep it. Um, um, within people that I'm really close with and I and I trust as well because it does feel like a kind of precious egg that you're nurturing in the early stages and mm. I think if you throw it wild, wildly around the place and ask everybody um, to feedback on it, everyone's going to kind of have different opinions and you need to make sure that you're um, that people are feeding back um, on the film that you're trying to make rather than feeding back on the film that they would make if they were in this position. So... Yeah, um, but I find it really useful. I, I find it especially useful in the late, later stages, getting people into the edit and mm -hmm. and um, and having people that I know and trust. And uh, and by and large, I, I I trust them to be quite honest. Mm. I, I think, which is important. It can be really hard to find people that are, that are going to be brutally honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Often those people are your good friends. Yeah, yeah. And and your partner is a filmmaker. Yeah, he is. So how do you guys? Um, Mira's partner is David Michaud, who made Animal Kingdom and just recently wrote Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, right? yeah. And 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 how do you guys uh, feed into each other's processes? Does that? Well, it's interesting because I think we're both very, very different filmmakers, but we're obviously yeah. incredibly 
close collaboratively and yeah. we read early early drafts we you know we watch early cuts and he's just finishing a film at the moment that I think I've probably watched maybe 15 times or something wow. so you you become there and sometimes you become co so close that you have no objective kind of opinion yeah. anymore either which yeah. is interesting yeah. like I watched he's just finishing a film called The King and I went and watched him uh, a cut to listen to some of his new music um a few days ago and he was sort of saying asking me this and that and I was like you know what I feel like I'm actually so close to it now that I can't give you any like I feel as close wow. you know so that 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 gets sort of interesting but we're mm. we, we're we're quite different. The sorts of things we make are very different. Yeah. Um, so I find it really useful. Um, but it can be hard too. I mean, it can be hard when you're um, when you're giving critique to your partner and yeah. you're trying to be really that honest it can be really difficult <laughs> yes yeah. it it's can. also very nice so uh, not just David but a, a bunch of people to have seen them and known them quite well going through the stages like from making shorts and transitioning into first features mm. and then second mm. features and making the choice of what's going to be next and so I feel like I've got a whole bunch of people where I, that I can kind of look at and and learn from how they made their decisions and you know I feel very supported in that respect very yes. lucky yeah I mean, it's such an ambitious first film, and you were telling me the budget was quite significant for a for a first feature, first right? Feature, yeah. Um, how did you tackle that? Every like, were were there times where you just wanted to stop in the shoot? Were there times where you just wanted to stop? Oh, like every <laughs> single day, <laughs> I just wanted to run. Oh. <laughs> Oh I just, but you can't. You just do it. You just do it. And the, the, the kind of good thing is it's like, I don't know, I, I, I probably shouldn't keep referring to the process of making a film as trauma, but it kind of <laughs> does feel like trauma. It kind of is. But when you're in like a, 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 a traumatic um experience all you can really do is do exactly what's in front of you you yeah, know you just yeah, to get yeah. through it so yes. like it's like you're in fight or flight <laughs> yeah I mean I probably sound like such an asshole comparing making a movie to something you know I, but no. it does feel a little bit yeah fight or flight. It, it's like and and the, and the thing is that you you have a really wonderful long never-ending list of things that you just have to get through you have to make a trillion decisions you have to go through a series of processes and you just kind of just get, keep going so I don't remember mm. There ever being much, uh, there's never really a time when you kind of stop to to think about how you got there or question. Mm. You just kind of do it. it yeah. It's, it's, and it's we weird. were we were having a conversation before because when you are an actor, you're allowed to feel things all the time. Like mm. you're allowed to, dis, you know, you displaying your feelings is what you do. Whereas when you're the director, you have to sort of hold it together for the team. But then also, I'm interested in like being a female director and coming from a different point of view, mm. um, like how did you manage that in terms of keeping it together but also remaining open and vulnerable and malleable and mm, honest? It's so interesting. I feel like I'm still kind of unpacking what I just instinctually did on set. Like I'm still now taking a step back and going, isn't that curious that I felt like I had to do that? Like I literally felt like I had to build this facade around me and create this character of someone in control. Wow. And um, it, it was really fascinating. Like on that first day when all I wanted to do was burst into tears, I was like, you will not. And I'm so used to as an actor, people are like, burst into tears, it's wonderful, cry. It's, uh, you know, they love it. <laughs> yeah. They do it. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, do. it's great. But suddenly Real I out. felt very very, you know, I really felt this because for me being on set as an actor, 
I, I remembered all the times I'd looked to a director and gone, often he, but sometimes she, doesn't know what they're doing and therefore I'm not going to trust them and I'm just going to do my own thing mm. and I'm going to try and protect myself. And it was imperative to me that everyone trusted me and part of that, I felt at the time, was building up this this kind of facade of control mm. and calm and, you know, all of these things that I felt like was important but was actually all kind of an act. I wonder now whether there's a different way of doing it. I mean, whether or whether there's just like... There's ways of being with different people on set that that maybe it can be a little less um, just singular, you know, that maybe yeah. you can have moments of vulnerability and openness as long as you're still maintaining a calm. I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of talking shit. It all shit, comes down to trust, doesn't it? Like if you've if, – if people trust you and you've surrounded yourself – um, with people that trust – people, you know, that trust you and you yeah. trust, then you can – And that's really important. And that's something you can do really early. Like make sure yeah. that the people that are coming on, that they understand and trust you. So you can kind of do that early yes. and hope that then by the time you get to set, everyone's got a certain mm. investment in you as the captain of that ship or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to open the floor to questions um, now if you guys have any quest Questions? Hello, testing. <laughs> well done. Amazing film. Thank you. Really good. Um, I've just got a couple of questions, so I'll hold it just for a little bit. But there's not too many people here, so I thought I'll make up for a few extras. Yeah, actions. you can ask a couple. <laughs> um, so, I, I, my name's Bailey. I'm from Adelaide originally. I've been living in Sydney for the last couple of years, and I've just moved here to New Zealand. And I'd love to be doing what you're doing one day, but I'm an aspiring DP. So I hope to be making a feature one day behind the camera. Great. Um, but I did want to ask just a couple of questions, a couple short, a couple maybe a bit longer. Um, if you're okay answering the question, I wouldn't mind knowing what sort of budget the mm -hmm. film was. Mm. It was, to, to be perfectly honest, I don't actually know because I know it sounds insane. It's insane when I, when I say that now, but it was around 10 million. So at the end of the day, it was around 10 million Australians. So okay. there, thereabouts, give or take. Something. Yeah, cool. I never looked at a budget. Probably should it's have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, and how long was the shoot? We shot for 30 days. Um, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty quick. Yeah, it was quick. It felt quick. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And was there was there much in the way of visual effects in the film? Yeah, there's quite a lot actually and quite like expensive visual effects, but it's all stuff that you don't kind of notice or, you know, <laughs> you hope that you don't notice. We had to paint out a lot of gum trees, you know. I mean, I had certain rules about the world. Like I wanted it to be, able to, you know, obviously we, we break rules all the time with language and whatnot, but there were certain things that I was very particular about. You know, I didn't want any Australian accents in the movie. I didn't want American accents. I didn't want anything that, that, that made it look, um, like we're in Australia and the main thing there was gum trees. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of them as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a fair amount of VFX in there that you probably wouldn't, wouldn't spot, but annoying ones that cost yeah. a lot of money that you just got to do them. Yeah, cool. Um, <clears throat> um, and sort of coming from your acting background, like how... How did that kind of how did that kind of shape your approach to directing? Like, because I suppose you've talked about how you kind of were in that in the zone when it came to dealing with actors and you know emotion and stuff. But like, how how has that shaped you as a director? Do you think? 
Yeah, look, I think in a way, I um, all I can do is go from my own experience as an actor. So I, I, I just try and think about the the, the times in um, in my work as an actor where I've really enjoyed a, a, an experience with a director, and the times where I haven't. And I kind of just try and break down my my way of working based on that. So, but it's it's funny because you know I had all the best of intentions, and I go in there thinking, oh, you know, I'm an actor, so I know how to talk to my cast, and that side of it's going to be easy, and I don't. And then you get in there, and you're so under the pump, and you don't have any time. And I found myself like every day at the end of each day, apologising to my actors for for basically doing to them what so many directors directors had done to me in the past, and I'd gotten so pissed off about. I was like, oh, they just never talk to me after every take, and I don't know if I'm doing something wrong, but they're just like ignoring me, and they're off talking to the camera department you know <laughs> but um I it, 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 I think it's gonna make me a better actor I hope because I think it gave me a much um more w- rounded awareness of of what um a director's dealing with and you know so yeah yeah cool um and another question like and this is something that I struggle with and I'm only quite like early on in my career I'm I'd love to do a feature one day but something I really struggle with as, as well being a female is almost like as being a director is kind of feeling like you have to come in and you're a head of a department and you kind of have to like lead the team or kind of you have to be you have to be a DP or you have to be a director like how, how do you combat that because like you know you have to trust your crew but you don't want them to take advantage of you either if you give them too much of yourself so how do you find a good balance of like being a director without you know being a crazy person but without being too like um trusting I suppose I don't know you know what I mean yeah yeah look I I think I do I mean um I I think that there's just a few really important rules I think um one you need to remember that everybody male or female you know award-winning DP or someone in film school everybody is going through the same anxieties and feeling like they're making it up in, in in a way. I mean, that's sort of quite a broad generalisation, but I do believe it to be true. Like, there's no one that steps on a set and just feels like they know exactly what's going on and they don't have any insecurities or doubts. So, so embracing that, I think, is important. Um, I, I, I think that a really important rule is kindness, is just being kindness, kind to people, kind to the people in your team and open and communicative and that that will then translate through to respect so it's like that stuff I was talking about before about this feeling this need to put on this sort of persona or be a certain way on set I'm not convinced that that's right I mean there was a part of me that did that and I got through it and maybe you know it's my first film and I was asking people to come on a pretty crazy journey with me and maybe for that for, for, for this film it was important for me or for for myself at that moment in time it was important I don't know that that's right I, I I just think being truthful and honest and communicative is really the only way and just navigating you know just navigate your way through and, and know that everyone else is scared too so don't worry <laughs> any other questions hi congratulations hi. first Thank off you. that film had a lot of things that I specifically love, so it kind of felt like a pastiche of that. Um, I've got two questions, if that's all right. Sure. Firstly, it was interesting to me that you were approached or commissioned to write about Punch and Judy, because when I was reading through the program, my eye was drawn because it was about Punch and Judy, because I was that strange 10-year-old that saw a Punch and Judy show and became very fixated on it. Oh, right. Um, And had done a lot of reading and read Neil Gaiman's, Neil Gaiman's comic about it and other media, so I was like, oh, movie about Punch and Judy, great. And then hearing that you were approached, I was curious, um, how much did you know about the kind of 
traditions before and then doing, because I'm, I'm obviously you did your research and it's all about, you've got all the symbolism and the literal baby out the window, which made me squeal with laughter. Um, <laughs> intended reaction or not. Um, so I'm just curious, like taking something that is so kind of sort of archaic and old fashioned and misogynistic, how did you know what to keep and what to subvert, you know, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah question. good question. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it was interesting. I didn't know that much. I mean, I had a sort of a wash of the sort of, yeah, general vibe of, of Punch and Judy. I'd never been particularly drawn to it, never been particularly drawn to puppets either. Um, I think once I started unpicking the kind of more historical stuff, that's when I got interested. And um, and then when I started um, realising just how quickly and easy, easily these sort of contemporary allegories started to be coming through and what I was writing, that was when it became really fun. And I was like, oh, okay, how can I kind of um, how can I sew this into the this absurd world and just kind of uh, instinctually found my way through it in, in that respect but I had no kind of like um, connection or nostalgia for the the historical play at all and and I also really wanted it to ex be able to exist uh, um, be able to play well to an audience that didn't have any because you know uh, aside from you know, um, the Brits, obviously, Australian, New Zealand, a little bit. The Americans seem to be a little bit familiar with um, with the um, with Punch and Judy from a historical perspective, but less so. But there's, you know, a lot of people that never heard of it before. So I wanted to make sure it could play to kind of anyone as well. Cool. Um, and my other question was, you was you spoke briefly that um, you you had the revelation that it was going to be a period piece or pseudo period, and I was just wondering for the screenwriting process, it. Was, be very interesting to me if you could break down like what kind of hard decisions you went through from first draft to second draft and at what point you decided like okay it's period or okay we're going she's going to arrive on horseback you know like what what big editing or choices things you cut out things like that um, well, I decided on the period stuff pretty early and I, I wrote the first draft, I just like dived in and wrote like the most appalling, embarrassing first draft ever and then eventually had to go, oh, I've got to send this device, this is so embarrassing and couldn't believe that they didn't fire me because I look back on it now and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but already there was certain, there was just like little seeds of stuff through it that I knew were working and it's amazing what just a little bit of distance, like, you know, I'd send it off, take six weeks or something for them to read it and feedback on it and by the time I read it again I was like oh god I'm so much clearer so I mean it was just sort of a process but it did take me quite a long time to write because I, I didn't sit down and structure it the way that you normally would or should I just kind of dived in I literally just opened a final draft document and started writing which I don't recommend it's not a great way <laughs> no problem any more questions hi I'm Karen uh, can you hear me here? Um, I'm interested in some practical things because I'm a practical person, an artist as well. So uh, I would like to know how, uh, how artists learn, no, actors learn their craft, for example, uh, yeah, the puppet. The marionetting, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw the hands and I was so impressed by that. And I mean, they have so many other skills. How do they learn that? Or are mm. there 
real uh, craft people. Well, we did. That. We had puppeteers, like trained puppeteers, who'd gone and like studied in France for three or four years, and the, and then when we got them to come and start teaching the actors, after a little, like they, the actors didn't have Mir and Damon didn't have that many, that much time, and then I was like, oh, they can basically do exactly what the puppeteers can do. I was amazed at how quickly they picked it up, and they were really wow. good. So we use a little bit of the like the puppeteers, and then a little bit of Mir and Damon, and then then there's a little bit of kind of manipulation and cuts around the, the sort of puppets to make it look a bit speckier than they are because puppets don't do much. It's like it's difficult to get them to do. And it's such a – it's a really gentle, delicate, mm. slow art form, you know, and, and puppeteers are very serious. They like – there's certain kind of – there's ways that you have to respect the puppets and, you know, like they get very – they're easily offended, I realise. They're wow. kind of – yeah, um, they take their art form very seriously, as they should. It's an amazing – but we were sort of um, sabotaging it all over the place with kind of – the realities of filmmaking and stuff. But they learned that. Um, Mia did a whole bunch of magic lessons and she actually got really good at all this magic Then we then had to cut out of the movie. I feel so bad, but she she became amazing at these um, coin tricks and sleight of hand things because we shot, shot a whole sequence with her with the kids doing a magic show. And then, of course, you get down to it and you just need the very end of one magic trick and then you've got to get on with the story. But, yeah, I mean, that sort of stuff, um, something like... Horse riding, Mia's done it in a bunch of movies before, so she's quite a good rider. I think actors start to get a little, like, a bit of a cachet of, like, tricks under their belt, right? Yeah. And then I, I always really love it as an actor when you get to learn a new skill for a role. It's, that's really fun, isn't it, when you have to go off and learn how to do something weird? Yeah, because the whole fun thing about acting is you get to pretend to be someone different to yourself. So you get to be like, yeah, I, I knit. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I ride horses. Yeah, I think most actors really love that part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also uh, there was a dance uh, in the in the woods and I mean especially Maya's hands they were so beautiful to look at. Oh, she was a ballerina for years oh, actually. Okay. Yes, yeah, she was she was a dancer. And she wanted to be a dancer and I think she was maybe too tall or something or just decided to become an actor instead. But you can see it's always in the hands. You can tell instantly. She's yeah yeah she she did a lot of ballet when she was young. Mm. No worries. Any more questions? Anyone? Great. Well, thank you so much. No worries. It's thank you, Chelsea. Such a fantastic film. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming, sticking around. Yeah. Congratulations and Thanks. every success with it. Cheers. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye. Cool.